For those who've uh, been coming the last few weeks, we're uh, working our way through the first letter of Peter. So if you want to turn to that in your Bibles, if you've uh, got them with you. Um, I think this is the fourth week, and so we're halfway through chapter one. It's good stuff. So I'm going to uh, be looking tonight at uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. 13 to 21. So Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, in reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, You believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these words of challenge, of encouragement. And we pray, Lord, that as we've already prayed tonight, Lord, that your spirit would just come amongst us. Lord, Minister these words into our lives, into our hearts. Lord, you know you know each one of us individually. You know the things that we need to hear, the things that we need to be encouraged with, the things that we need to be challenged with. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, that you would just, just speak into our minds, Lord. Speak into our lives by your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last, uh, I think, three weeks, um, uh, Phil and Edward have uh, looked at the first uh, 12 verses of this uh, wonderful letter. And uh, it lays out the, the glories of the salvation hope that we have in Jesus. And they are verses that are so full that it's taken three weeks to get here. Um, as the advert says, there's so much in it, uh, so much uh, for us to learn And it talks about the hope that we have in Christ and that that hope is not a vague hope, but one is, is, uh, to use the theological terms, both Christological and eschatological. It's based on what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection on the cross and how that changes, not just then, but now, right now, it makes a difference. But it also looks forward to what he's going to do in the future as we look 
for his return. And so Peter says, we are told that the prophets predicted salvation, that the apostles proclaim it, and the angels prize it. And therefore we need to receive it. And so having laid all that out, that on which our faith is based, as we come to this verse 13, there's that word again. Therefore. It's always, someone says, the most scariest word in Scripture. Therefore, because you know that something's coming. You know that a challenge is coming. You're not sure what, but it's coming. Therefore, after establishing the hope in which we believe, we are challenged to live it out in the world. And he says, therefore, Peter says, you have to take hold of it. And in these verses, he challenges us on three things. He challenges to be hopeful in verse 13, to be holy in verse 15, and to be wholehearted in verse 17. That we are to be hopeful, holy, and wholehearted. I do love an alliteration. Now, I know the pedantic ones amongst us will say, yes, but wholehearted starts with a W. But then, I have to say, where I come from, where H's are for posh people, we would say, hopeful, holy, and did. <laughs> so they all start with an O. And they're all quite challenging. But thankfully, Peter doesn't just say, this is what I want you to do, go and get on with it that you need to be hopeful, holy and wholehearted. He also tells us how we might be hopeful, how we might be holy and how we might be wholehearted as we follow Jesus. So the first thing, I say, let's go to verse 13. Therefore, he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace of to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That's not easy to do. We are called to be hopeful and expectant, even when things are going wrong. The recurring theme that we hear is through this, uh, this letter is that Peter is writing to a church that are under pressure, a church that are struggling, a church where people are getting, as we do, get, getting clobbered by the around them that they, were, they are struggling with. They are going through personal struggles and trials. They are beginning to experience persecution. And Peter says, I want you to be hopeful in this situation, to rest on that hope that you've been given as Jesus is revealed, to rest your hope fully, to set your hope completely, totally and utterly on Jesus. As we heard last week, biblical hope isn't the kind of hope that we often, the way we use the word uh, these days, you know, I hope. I hope he's not going to be too long. But it's an expectant hope, not a vague hope, but one that has a purpose and that has an evidence, have evidence to back it up. Someone put it like this once. Other men see only an endless hope, but the Christian rejoices. Sorry. Other men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. 
Romans 14, 18 holds up the example of Abraham to help us to have hope when it seems hopeless. And he's described as someone who, contrary to hope, in hope believed. Contrary to hope, in hope believed. So Peter says we need to be a hopeful people, no matter what's going on around us. And how can we do that? It is, he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. In the old translations, this verse is translated, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? One of those great old-fashioned, gird up the loins of your mind. And I think in some senses it, it captures more the meaning of, that Peter has rather than the modern translations about being alert and sober. Girding up your loins is an image that's used several times in Scripture. Obviously because uh, it's an image of, of men who would, and women who would wear cloaks that were long and they would tuck them up and tuck them into their belt. That was what girding them up meant. Ready to, to do whatever was. And the men would tuck up their, their robes into their belts, ready for, for work or for war or for running or, or whatever. The idea is to be ready to respond to what was coming. You remember in, in Exodus 2, the people are told to be ready to move during the Passover. And it says, this is how you shall eat with your toque your cloak tucked into your belt. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah, we're told, girded up his loins and run ahead of Ahab. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, be dressed ready for service. But Peter talks about girding up the loins of your mind. So it's not about clothes, it's about our minds. Prepare your minds for action. Why would he want to say this? Well, because we know that when we're under pressure, the fiercest battles for many of us are not out there, but in here, in our minds, aren't they? That's where the real battle often takes place. In our minds. And he said, if you want to be a hopeful people, you need to have your minds ready. You need to look after them. It's interesting that we have this modern movement of mindfulness, don't we? The recognition that for us to have good mental health, we need to spend time looking after our minds. We all know that to look after our bodies, we need to exercise and feed them right. But people are beginning to realise you need to do the same with your minds. Peter's saying, look, to live healthy spiritual lives, we need to prepare and look after our minds properly because they are one of the key battlegrounds in our Christian lives. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about taking every thought captive. That means not just letting these things run but focusing on things that will build us up. 
But these things take work and discipline. That's why he says you need to be alert and ready and, and gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. You need to be prepared to do this. You need to do something about it. And Peter follows this, doesn't he? By being, saying, by being sober. In uh, earlier translations, it talks about being self-controlled. Translate the word that is translated sober as being self-controlled. And in some senses, I prefer that because, although I'm not advocating drunkenness, what Peter is saying here is not about, you know, solely about what we drink about being sober. He's saying much more than that. His concern is that we don't live under the influence of the world that's around us or become intoxicated by the things that that are within us. Here I think he means when he says, I want you to be sober, he he means I want you to be clear-headed. That's a a much broader meaning of the word sober that, that we would think of. If you are to be alert, you also need to be clear-headed. It's about exercising some controls in our minds that means that that we can be in touch with reality, both spiritual. It's about being alert to the dangers around us and seeing things for what they are in the the context of the, the aforementioned hope that we have in Christ and not being distracted. It's about training our minds to think on the hope of Jesus and not be distracted by those other things. How can we remain hopeful? By having our minds alert and clear-headed. Making sure that we take care to, to feed and train our minds to see things as they are, to see the spiritual realities around us. An example of this is, you know, he went to Athens and, and, and he sees all these temples, and he, but he doesn't see the beautiful architecture and the sculpt, sculptured art around with the temples and the images of pagan gods. He doesn't see them as architecture and art. He sees them spiritually as a hunger for truth that he was able then to preach into. That's the way his mind was focused. That's the way his mind saw things. He wasn't carried away by saying, ah, wonderful building. We need to train our minds to see the spiritual realities. It's an important part to be ready in our minds to deal with the stuff that can undermine that hope. Making sure that we take care to feed and train our minds with the right spiritual food and disciplines reading the scriptures, talking and listening to and with other Christians, asking questions. In chapter 2, we're urged to grow up in our holiness. We are to grow and mature in our faith. But to do that, we need to educate it. Don't we? To live in the hope of faith, we must know about it. We must have thought about it. We must even have rest, had to wrestle with it so that our minds are ready for action. 
So Peter challenges us to be hopeful, then he challenges us to be holy. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. There has to be an outward working of the hope in which we live. We must live differently because of that hope. Peter is concerned that the way in which Christians live should testify to that faith and hope in God. And to, the, to believe in God means that we must show the essential character of God and the holiness that is at the heart of that. He is holy, we must be holy. And that command to be holy has a sense of urgency about it. That phrase is found right back in Leviticus 11, be holy for I am holy, and several other passages. After listening to a long, drawn-out sermon, a little boy walked out of the service with a big frown on his face. He'd had a rough morning because his dad kept telling him off every time he fidgeted and muttered. And seeing his long face, one of the members of the church came up and said, what's the matter? You look so sad. And the little boy said, I'm sad. I think it might be hard to be happy and holy at the same time. And that's often the way we approach holiness. We think it's hard to be holy and happy at the same time. We think that to be holy means that we can never be happy. Often we think we have to be unholy to be happy. Actually, the way to happiness is through holiness. I like what uh, C.S. Lewis once said, how little people know who think that holiness is dull... When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. If 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's out? Unfortunately, we often get confused about what it means to be holy. We perhaps uh, think about about being religious or, or what that means. And some even see holiness as a vice, not a virtue. That we might become holier than thou, for instance. And it's hard to get our minds around it, but essentially, holiness is about reflecting God. That our, con- our conduct reflects God. Our walk with God has to be shown in the way we live and the way we are that we must try, strive in every aspect of our lives to reflect something of God. How are we to do that? Again, Peter tells us two things. Firstly, that we might live by obedience. Verse 14, he says, as obedient children. We think about being a child A child is usually controlled, often by a parent, hopefully. And it's almost obvious, we find a child wants to live to please their parents. 
literally the word here that uh, is translated um, obedient is uh, two words, here, as in here, under. The idea of hearing under. It's a picture of submitting, of listening. Serving, recognizing someone in authority of, over us. And so for Peter, holiness is not so much about rules and regulations, but it's about listening and wanting to please God, our Father. So the second thing he says is that you don't need to live like you used to live. Don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't get squeezed into the mould that the world would have you. Break out of the mould. Jesus comes that we might have freedom to break out of that mould. Again, Peter's speaking here to a church that's struggling, Christians who are struggling. And the truth is that you don't drift towards holiness. You have to go after it. But you can drift away from holiness. So you have to hold on to it. So Peter says, let's be hopeful, let's be holy. And finally, thirdly, he says, let's be wholehearted in our living for Jesus. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Essentially, we are to remember who God is. And so we are to live in this world, filled with all its difficulties and temptations, with a reverence for God, a wholeheartedness of recognizing who God is. And if we take on the truth of that, we can't be half-hearted. To have that reverent fear of God. It's great that we are invited to call upon our Father God for whatever we need. But sometimes we get the balance wrong, don't we? Sometimes we, we create a God who, um, a friend of mine describes a, as a great teddy bear in the sky. You don't wholeheartedly follow a God like that. You come to God with reverent fear. We need to remember that he is our judge. And it's wonderful that we have a relationship with him, but we have to revere him. But we are not told to look upon God with a, with a soul-destroying dread. A proper awe for God doesn't drive us away from him, but draws us to him. Because at the heart of that reverence is the need to recognize what this holy God has done for us. We wholeheartedly commit because we know what our redemption is about. We know by whom and how we were redeemed. And if we know that, it's a massive incentive to live wholeheartedly for him. So we have, again, Peter tells us, to have to have at the forefront of our minds to know from what we have been redeemed and the cost of that redemption. For you know it wasn't by perishable things. 
but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What we have is what Jesus bought for us at at great cost. The ransom price was his life given on the cross. It's like someone giving you a present. And you approach it in a different way when you, when you realize that either it's cost a lot financially or it's cost a lot in time or effort. Sometimes we approach a, a, a gift differently because of who it is that's giving it to us. And so Peter says, look, if, if you know what Jesus has done for you, if you understand the wonder of the gift of salvation given out of love by God through Jesus on the cross, then you can only but turn to him wholeheartedly. I love that old Easter hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I love the last two lines of the last verse. As it surveyed the cross, it says, Love so amazing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Peter says, well, what, make, what will make us serve God wholeheartedly because we know what he's done for us. He's not just done it for us, he's done it for a purpose. This is part of God's plan. There is a plan to which we commit ourselves to. We're going to hear a lot about various plans in the next few weeks. People are going to tell us about their costed plans, their radical plans. But they've not got a plan like God's plan, not like God's plan and purpose. But Peter says has been revealed to us, the secret, we're part of it. Again, how do we know, how do we know that there's a, this is a realistic plan? Because we can see the solid evidence through the resurrection. Through him, believing God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. This is a God in whom we can put our full faith and wholehearted hope. There's nothing worse, is there, than getting involved in something that you don't know the purpose of. Because it's easy to get to the point of saying, well, I don't know why I'm bothering with this. I don't know how it's all going to work out. Peter says, actually, look, God's plan is not like that. You're redeemed by God in his plan and purpose that he brought Jesus back from the dead and he will continue to fulfill his promises. And he says, in that light, we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the purposes of God. There was a church that was having a series of evangelistic meetings. And on the first night, the preacher preached a message about repentance and the need to return to the Lord. And during the altar call, 
A man came down the aisle shouting, Lord, fill me up, fill me up. The next night, the preacher challenged the congregation in need about responding to Jesus. And again, as the offer to respond was given, that same man came down the aisle saying, Lord, fill me up, fill me up. The third night, the preacher preached again. And again, there was a call. And as the invitation was made, one of the men came down the aisle again and said, Lord, Lord, fill me up, fill me up. And someone at the back shouted, don't do it, Lord, he leaks. But the fact is, we all leak. When we're under pressure, when we're struggling, when things happen in life, we all leak. And Peter knew that. He was writing to a church that was struggling. And he knew that they had to be encouraged and, and, and challenged. They had to be reminded and refueled and refilled. And he does that by challenging them to live hopeful, holy and wholehearted lives for God. And he challenges us the same. That he wants us to be that hopeful, holy, wholehearted people of, of God. And that means that again, we have to come back. Again, we have to come back and say, Lord, tell us again. Fill us again. We need to be challenged again to live hopeful, holy, wholehearted lives for God that we might discover all that God has for us.